Good morning. Hello, um, I'm Chris Lowry from the Cancer Center, and I'd like to welcome you all to Medical Grand Rounds today. Dr. Rothstein is away, so uh, I'm filling in. And I have the distinct privilege of introducing our speaker for today, one of our very own, Dr. Eric Lansigan, who's a faculty member of uh, the Department of Medicine and of the Cancer Center. I always think it's... Uh, uh, particularly enjoyable to have one of our own faculty members give grand rounds uh, because we usually learn um, about some things we never knew about the, um, our colleagues and their interests and their accomplishments. And I think you'll be really uh, interested in what Dr. Lanskin has to tell you today. But first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about his background. He received his BA from Yale, where uh, something I didn't know about him, he majored in music theory and composition. <laughs> Quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Uh, he then um, went on to get his MD degree from the State University of New York at Brooklyn Health Science Center. And then he went on to do his internal medicine residency at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, where he stayed on as chief resident. He then went back to Yale, where he did his hematology oncology fellowship, and that's where he first developed his interest in lymphoma, and particularly in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma that he's going to tell us about today. And while he was there, he worked with a world-renowned expert in this uh, field, Dr. Francine Foss. In 2009, we were very lucky to um, uh, have Eric join our faculty here. And uh, since that time, he's established himself as a real expert in lymphoma, uh, not only here, but throughout the region. He's formed collaborations with uh, other experts in lymphoma throughout uh, New England, and uh, he's done collaborative trials with them and other research projects, so he's very well known locally and uh, even beyond. He's uh, had over 20 peer-reviewed publications and reviews, despite being a relatively young faculty member. He's also re received several grants uh, to fund his clinical uh, and translational research projects. Um, he's a strong uh, participant in our teaching to medical students and to residents and to our fellows. He's included them in his publications and uh, in his research project. He's given invited presentations at the American Society of Hematology, which is the largest hematology meeting in the world every year. And he was also an invited speaker at the World Congress of Contagious Lymphomas in Berlin, Germany, a couple years ago. A, a huge honor. And uh, besides all that, his expertise in lymphoma and his teaching and his research, Dr. Lanskin is also the clinical director of One West, where he's involved in many um, uh, safety and improvement projects um, with the staff there. So it's a, a great pleasure that I take in uh, welcoming Dr. Lansigan to give grand rounds today. And his topic is the Contagious Lymphoma Program, What Lies Beneath the Skin. Eric? Thank you, Chris, for that really, really nice introduction. Um, it's a pleasure to be here in front of you all. And um, when I was deciding on jobs, I remember uh, my interview with Diane Stearns, uh, a nurse practitioner who's here in the audience. And uh, she told me about the lymphoma um, 
uh, patients that were here and said there was definitely a niche uh, for cutaneous lymphoma, which I had just finished some training on. And it really um, put Dartmouth on the radar for me. And um, I've been here now five over five years and um, really think uh, this is the right fit. So today I'll tell you about um, cutaneous lymphoma, our program, and we'll kind of dissect it and peel back the layers and see what really lies beneath. I do have um, some disclosures. Um, I get research support from Spectrum and Teva. Um, I've served as a consultant for Seattle Genetics and Celgene. Uh, this is what we'll talk about today. We'll just briefly talk about our, our program um, that we've built here. Um, We'll talk about some nomenclature for cutaneous lymphomas, um, how it develops, staging, and uh, then treatment approaches. Um, I'd like to uh, end with some experimental therapies uh, that I've uh, worked with, um, and then just um, round out how we uh, take care of patients in our program. So, um, Oh, maybe some of you remember uh, Pamela Ely, who um, uh, left right before I came, and I kind of took over um, the lymphoma program from her. Um, and we really, uh, I really t wanted to build something uh, here, um, really formalize a, a lymphoma program, and realize that there was a need for a, a cutaneous lymphoma program. Um, so. It was around that time photophoresis was just started, too, so it actually um, made things um, very easy. We had a lot of momentum going into um, building this. Um, and when I got here, I started doing educational talks in the community and for the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation program, um, getting some visibility. And since then, we've had a steady influx of patients through our, our clinic. Um, I have clinic with um, the dermatology group, and some, a lot of them are here in the audience, um, particularly Dr. Zug, who also um, has a special interest in um, lymphomas. And uh, we see a mix of new patients on follow-ups um, every Monday afternoon. And then I created a tumor board for cutaneous lymphoma to kind of just um, solidify our learning about this rare disease. And um, we've built up a truly multidisciplinary uh, care team, which is um, really, I think, the way to go for this, uh, this rare disease. And it serves as a teaching program for the dermatology residents and the fellows who rotate through our program. Um, and we have specialty nurses. Um, some of them are here in the audience. Um, we have German heme path. Um, we, use, we utilize radiation oncology. Uh, and um, we've built a research program, really, for a rare disease, but um, we're doing quite well in this domain. So what is cutaneous, um, cutaneous lymphoma in general? Um, it's a subset of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that involves the skin, um, more so than the lymph nodes. 20% um, are B-cell lymphomas, and about 80% are T-cell lymphomas. And the most common type is uh, called mycosis fungoides, which is a form of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Uh, these, these are chronic diseases, um, considered indolent um, and not life-threatening threatening generally, but in advanced stages, it definitely has an impact on um, patient survival. 
Um, this is how it's grouped. Um, the most common B-cell lymphomas are on the left. There's marginal zone lymphoma, follicular center cell lymphoma, um, and there's a form of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Those are more rare. On the right, uh, the most common um, is mycosis fungoides, um, and its uh, leukemic counterpart is Cesare syndrome. Then there's a whole host of um, other T-cell lymphomas, which certainly become more rare, but I can tell you um, pretty much every one of this, these lymphomas on this list um, we've um, seen in our clinic. Today we'll focus on mycosis fungoides and Cesare syndrome because um, it is the most common and um, it's where I have uh, some clinical research interest. <coughs> So mycosis fungoides was first described in 1806 um, by a guy named Alibert um, in France, and he noticed that these uh, there were some patients who developed these mushroom-like tumors on their face um, and all throughout their body, hence the name mycosis fungoides. Um, it is the most common um, type of lymphoma in the skin, and I will point out that it is very, it is considered pretty rare. Um, it's only 0.6 per 100,000 incidents annually, which, um, you know, is, is, is very infrequent, but I can tell you that um, in our clinic we evaluate um, at least four new patients a month. Um, some are kind of rule out diagnoses, but we think that the incidence is probably somewhat higher than that and just underreported. Um, presents as isolated patches, plaques, and or tumors, which you'll see. Um, and um, uh, we'll go through some of the common histopathologic features um, in some photographs. Uh, but why is this important? And, um, what makes this disease uh, challenging, and I love challenges, <laughs> is that it's very a uh, morbid condition. Um, a lot of patients experience really intolerable itching. They're unable to sleep, um, unable to work, uh, in, unable to really interact um, socially. Um, they get infections um, late in the course of their disease um, because of the skin breakdown, and it is the most common cause of death in advanced stages. And it is disfiguring, as you saw in that first um, cartoon, um, and it can impact um, their everyday interactions. Um, so there is a need to um, improve treatments uh, for this disease. Uh, these are just some photos of um, kind of the patch plaque disease that we see. Um, you can see that it uh, affects um, particularly areas that are uh, non-sun exposed. Um, so the trunk, um, the arm, axilla, and buttock areas are very common areas. Um, and they're often mistaken for psoriasis or eczema um, and other dermatitis, and they can go misdiagnosed for many years um, before a biopsy is taken and uh, the, um, the real disease is uncovered. So I'll kind of take you through what normal skin looks like, because we'll look at some photos of um, the disease itself. Um, so you do have the keratinized layer of the stratum corneum, and then you have the epidermis here in pink, and then the papillary dermis kind of um, interdigitates um, with the epidermis, and then the deeper down you have the reticular dermis. And that's a, a very organized structure. Um, but in 
uh, mycosis fungoides, um, you have this dense um, band-like infiltrate of lymphocytes, which are blue, um, in the dermis. And then you start to see what we call epidermotropism, where the lymphocytes start to invade into the uh, epidermis. And um, in um, some cases, they can form these uh, collection of lymphocytes called Portrio's microabscesses, um, which um, we'll see in a schematic is uh, um, interaction with the microenvironment um, with the Langerhans cells. Um, so you can see that the, uh, um, the lymphocytes are really kind of take over um, in the skin. Um, if we look in, in an immunohistochemistry, we can see um, we put stains on. So this is just the H and E um, slides. And um, if you do T cell markers, they're all uh, T cells that infiltrate and then into the epidermis. Um, and they predominantly express uh, CD4 more than CD8, as you can see there. Um, and as I said, it can go misdiagnosed for um, many years, and um, to make a diagnosis still becomes a challenge for early stage disease. And so there have been um, criteria that have been developed um, which utilize some clinical features and some pathologic features. And so basically, um, if they have uh, patch plaque disease in the right areas, uh, they get certain points towards the diagnosis. If the um, pathology looks as certain way, and you have that uh, lymphoid infiltrate, and you have the epidermotropism, and if the lymphoid cells look um, irregular, um, you get some more points. Um, we can add on T-cell clonality studies to that to um, further nail down a diagnosis. And then, um, I didn't go into it very much, but uh, there can be some a loss of other T-cell markers, which is an aberrant um, phenotype for the disease, and that also counts towards the diagnosis. So if you do um, have um, a, a four points in this um, scoring system, you're more likely than not to have mycosis fungoides. Um, this is just a schematic breakdown of what the proteins look like on the surface of the T cell. As I mentioned, they're the T cell markers, which are uh, CD3, CD4. Um, uh, but there's also a protein here called CCR4, um, which we'll see um, becomes a target in some of the new therapies that we're trying out. Um, there's cutaneous lymphoma antigen, um, uh, CD25, uh, which is part of the IL-2 receptor, and um, uh, then you have these uh, loss of these proteins um, uh, in an aberrant phenotype. Um, but how do the lymphocytes get to the skin and into the epidermis. And um, it's thought that they uh, home there um, via um, these uh, proteins uh, such as CCR4 and CLA, which um, bind um, to um, uh, receptors on the endothelium, um, such as E-selectin and uh, CCL17. And then they can extravasate through the dermis into the epidermis, um, where they find a home um, interacting with the Langerhans cells. And then there's a further interaction, which kind of maintains um, that uh, their survival um, signals uh, within the epidermis. So this is um, 
what is thought um, to happen and how the lymphocytes, lymphocytes get there in the first place. Um, staging system uses a typical TNM situation for cancers, um, but the T is a skin score, and it's um, due to like how extensive the involvement is. And then we add in something called the B staging system, which is the blood, um, and whether or not we could find circulating cells that are cancerous. Uh, so C the, the staging for mycosis fungoides. Um, we here have a T1, which involves less than 10% of skin if patch plaque disease. T2 can involve more skin, um, which is more than 10%. T3 start to get these tumors on the, um, throughout the body. Um, and sometimes we have them serially progress from earlier stages, but a lot of times they present de novo. Um, this is uh, a patient of ours who has um, strictly tumor disease, and you can see how it affects really the uh, non-sun exposed areas um, of her skin. Um, and the last um, T staging is T4, which is uh, generalized erythroderma, when patients um, present very red um, skin, angry looking skin. And um, in many of these cases, they do have uh, circulating um, cesare cells, which is a leukemic form, in their blood. And this is the condition where there's extreme disabling pruritus um, and becomes very challenging. This is a patient of ours who had um, erythroderma um, throughout his course of the disease. And we'll see him later after treatment. Um, so just to review, um, we have this, which is stage T2, um, T3, and T4. Okay. So now you're all experts at our staging system. You're all dermatologists and oncologists. <laughs> Now, why is staging important? Staging important is because we um, can determine prognosis. Um, and really, the breakdown can be very simple. So I'll even simplify it for you more. Um, and that is, uh, we can talk about mycosis fungoides in an early stage or an advanced stage in red. And if you just draw a line at the level of T2, um, that's kind of where you can um, figure out early versus advanced um, between T2 and T3. So anything with a tumor stage or erythroderma is considered advanced stage disease. Um, and the nodal system, it's a little bit complex, and so um, we're not going to go into that in great detail. Um, but this is important because we can help um, stratify patients in terms of their survival. and. Here you can see that T1 disease, um, really the life expectancy is that of um, the general population. And so people live with uh, mycosis fungoides um, pretty much as long as um, they would live normally. Um, but once you start getting into more advanced stages, more than 10% of skin, it has an impact on their overall survival. Um, and certainly for T3 and T4 disease, it becomes even more um, um, detrimental to their health. Um, and then if you use the formal staging system with uh, nodal and visceral involvement, you get even more uh, separation of these curves. 
And the reason um, we stage people is that we can help then um, choose treatments for them. Um, certainly for uh, early stage uh, 1A or um, 1D, that's a T1, T2 disease, uh, we would think of just skin-directed treatment only. And um, this is... Uh, we, we treat them um, in collaboration with our dermatologists um, with uh, certain skin-directed therapies, which we'll go through. Um, as their disease advances, we might choose different um, agents, um, maybe phototherapy, maybe um, single-agent um, chemotherapy, um, and then there's a role for something called extracorporeal um, photophoresis. Um, of course, it's always appropriate to enroll patients in clinical trials, especially for a rare disease. Uh, we want to just make sure we're offering um, patients uh, the latest and uh, in uh, in care for uh, for novel therapies. Now, what are our skin-directed therapies? Um, uh, topical steroids are effective, um, but often you apply them um, and the disease uh, it gets better, but then it often comes back. And a lot of times they've been on topical steroids by the time they get diagnosed um, by us, and so they've already failed their uh, steroid treatment. Then we have topical um, chemotherapy agents, such as nitrogen mustard and bexerotene, which we'll talk about. Um, and then other skin-directed therapies uh, that we use is phototherapy. Um, also used in psoriasis, but here in our disease, um, we use narrow band UVB and PUVA. Um, and uh, radiation therapy also has plays a big role when we need it. Um, when systemic therapies are needed, uh, we have a whole host of agents to choose from, and um, we kind of uh, pick and choose based on patients' other uh, medical conditions, um, what targets might be present on the, the cell when we um, look under the microscope and immunohistochemistry. So the topical chemotherapies uh, that we'll talk about briefly are nitrogen mustard and bexerotene. Um, nitrogen mustard is a DNA alkylator, and um, it's uh, formulated in either a gel or ointment form. And in a phase two trial, it had very high response rates, 93, 72% um, for T1 and T2 disease. Um, but in when they actually do a phase three of a gel formulation, which is um, commercially available, um, versus a compounded ointment form, um, the overall response rates are a little bit lower, and I think this is more real-world um, examples. Um, the nitrogen mustard and the uh, vehicle of the, the gel um, can cause a dermatitis, and it can be a pretty severe dermatitis. Um, so when you're telling a patient that they can get a rash, um, a, another rash on top of their CTCL, um, that sometimes it scares them away, and when they actually do develop it, they're um, quite unhappy. But um, if it is effective, and um, it is something worth trying in people with early-stage disease where they um, can apply the um, gel uh, to their uh, affected areas. Then there's topical lexerotene, which is... Um, uh, retinoid X receptor ligand, and it can induce proliferation, uh, uh, actually um, stop the proliferation and induce apoptosis of uh, the cancer cells in the skin. 
and um, is uh, also effective. The problem with this, um, and, th and also this formulation of uh, Valclor and nitrogen mustard, difficult to get. Insurance doesn't always approve a lot of large copays, and so um, it's challenging on our end to get these uh, agents for our patients, but we eventually do get them. Now, phototherapy um, is a large part of our program, um, and they can receive this in a dermatology office. Um, the mechanism of action is that it induces apoptosis, um, possibly by interacting and, and affecting the Langerhans cells. And we have two forms that we use, um, narrow van UVB and um, UVA, um, plus a drug called Sorlin, and that's called Puva. So the narrow band spectrum is really around the 320 nano-wavelength, um, um, and the, um, uh, it really just concentrates uh, the, the wavelength to that um, it's uh, given in a light booth unit similar to this one, and its efficacy is um, actually quite good, um, 50 to 90% response rates, complete response rates, especially better in earlier stages like T1 and T2 disease. Um, side effects can be pruritus, so itching, more itching, um, erythema, um, increased risk, um, accelerated photoaging but considered less risky and less risk than Puva. Now, Puva uh, incorporates a, a drug called Sorolin, and they take this drug um, one hour before they go into the UVA light. And then the UVA um, photoactivates the, the drug, and then the drug can then interact with the cell and intercalate into the DNA and um, induce apoptosis. So uh, it's a little bit different. It adds, it's kind of a photochemotherapy, if you will. Um, and it has a little bit or increased risk of other uh, skin cancers and melanoma. Um, then we have uh, for a more extensive disease, um, electron beam radiation therapy. And this we uh, utilize our radiation oncology, uh, oncology colleagues. And um, we have our electron beam accelerator. Um, and we put uh, patients in this, these positions to shine the, uh, the radiation um, on all surfaces of their skin. Um, a full course would be 30 to 36 gray, which is um, can be difficult for patients, and they need a break. Um, and but they do respond, um, and they can respond quite quite well. The problem is is that it's not a durable durable response, and we often need maintenance strategy for uh, chemotherapy or something to follow it. Um, but it's good for patients with extensive disease who need a quick response. Um, localized electron beam is also becoming more um, uh, popular, and especially a really low dose, just to kind of see if the disease can be held in check um, just with two fractions. Um, so all of this can be uh, done here um, with our, our, our electron beam unit. 
Um, the side effects of the electron beam is that it can cause erythema, edema. It's like you're having a, a big burn on your skin. Um, patients do lose their hair. Um, their nails often get affected. Um, they don't sweat uh, for kind of up to six months if they get the full course of the radiation. Um, so it is, it's not without side effects. Um, and again, not a durable response. But we've used it in, in many situations, especially when we're trying to bridge patients to um, perhaps an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, another agent we use is bexarotene. It's, uh, um, again, the retinoid uh, receptor ligand. Um, and this is an oral form. And um, its response rate is upwards of 50%. Uh, has unique side effects, uh, often have hypertriglyceridemia, um, which requires a treatment with a lipid-lowering agent, lipid agent. And then we get um, central hypothyroidism, and um, almost all patients go on thyroid supplementation. Um, and, but you can see that for even for tumor stages, it's a very effective treatment. Now, stage four disease um, with Cesare um, cells in the blood, um, that uh, you would think is a harder disease to treat. Um, but we do have a very unique therapy here at Dartmouth. Um, and this is a, a treatment uh, that was developed in the 70s and 80s by a guy named Rick Edelson, who was at Yale and still at Yale. He's a dermatologist. Um, and he used the principle of that photo uh, chemotherapy um, that I was talking about, that PUVA does. And this can be thought of as PUVA for the blood. So basically, um, the patient um, has a phoresis procedure, and the white blood cells are um, um, removed. Um, temporarily, and then they're um, infused with methoxysoril, um, um, basically a sorolin agent, and then photoactivated with light, um, and then returned back to the patient. So this process um, starts a process of apoptosis of uh, perhaps those Cesare cells, um, and then um, return back to the patient. And that whole um, process induces um, a cascade of events. Um, starting with the apoptosis of the lymphocytes, um, but then the uh, immune system can be matured and, um, and converting the uh, monocytes to immature dendritic cells. And the dendritic cells can then um, present antigen more effectively. Um, and this is the way the photophoresis procedure is thought to work. And it is quite effective for uh, patients with all stage of disease, especially in T4 disease, when they're erythrodermic. I mean, you get a response rates upwards of 60%. Um, so uh, very effective. Um, patients get a, a relief from their pruritus. Um, and I think it's an underutilized procedure. Um, and we do happen to have it here. And as you see here, um, we recently um, we have a manuscript in press on this, on our experience of um, starting a photophoresis pro program. Um, but patients come from quite far to receive this uh, therapy. Um, and many of them do benefit. Uh, now, moving into kind of the new drugs that we use, um, there's uh, something called histone deacetylase inhibitors. 
Um, and so if you think of the tumor cell here with um, the DNA and gene expression, um, so cancer cells have active uh, histone deacetylases, uh, which are active, um, but when you inactivate them, you add, they become, um, add these acetyl groups, and that promotes activation of, uh, reactivation of tumor suppressors that had been turned off by the cancer. Um, and so uh, this uh, class of agents was approved, uh, was first tried in, in lymphoma, found to be very effective in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and it had its first approval um, for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Um, response rates are about 30 percent um, um, using these agents, and now there are at least three on the market. Um, so just to show you, um, I did flash this patient once before. He um, presented with erythroderma. Um, and then after two cycles of um, an HAC inhibitor, you can see that his um, erythroderma is, is largely gone. Um, and his skin, the thickened skin, hyperkeratosis and the deepening of his, um, his wrinkles here um, are flattened out. Um, so this has really been an effective therapy for him. And um, one of the agents we use, romadepsin, also um, helps with the pruritus. So when formally looked at, um, patients have a self-reported improvement in their itch. Then we go to different chemotherapies, which have their host of response rates. So. Um, you know, we can grab from a number of different ones, uh, but this is at a time when you know their disease is more advanced, and um, we're often just trying one at a time, trying to um, improve their skin condition. Um, but really, if we can, we try. Um, if their disease becomes um, so advanced or uh, not responding anymore to the current therapies we have available, uh, we would do an allogeneic stem cell transplant. And since I've been here, we've done at least three or four um, of my patients here. And, um, you know, I just think that we have a really great program to be able to offer every level of care for them. Um, and the transplanters in this room um, have really helped um, many of our cutaneous lymphoma patients. Um, there is a graft versus lymphoma effect, and that's what really is um, keeping their disease in check. Uh, so basically, to summarize um, the current therapies that we um, have, um, the principles uh, we use uh, for early stage disease, uh, skin-directed therapy such as narrow band, PUVA, uh, nitrogen mustard, topical bexerotene, um, uh, but then we can move into uh, single-agent chemotherapies and actually biologic therapies, which I didn't really talk about, um, which boost the immune system, boost the immune response, such as interferon, um, or um, use methotrexate just as we would in, uh, say, a rheumatoid arthritis patient. Um, and then um, we try and put patients on clinical trials if we have them available, and we have photophoresis, works well for sensory disease when disease is in the blood, and radioimmunotherapy, sorry, um, electron beam radiation therapy when we need to get a quick response or as a bridge to an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Now, um, 
in the time that we have left, I will talk a little bit about some new targets, um, and that's kind of the buzzword for uh, cancer therapies these, these days. I'll talk a little bit about um, a pathway that um, I started uncovering when I was at Yale and how we did a clinical trial to kind of proof of concept, um, and then targeting um, uh, a protein marker on the um, lymphocytes called CD30, and another target was the CCR4, which I talked about earlier. So when I first started seeing this disease with my mentor, um, patients were red, they had angry-looking skin. This was one of the patients that we had. And I thought, well, you know, this is the time when um, the vasizumab was, um, came on the scene and um, was found to have a role in colon cancer and lung cancer. So I thought, well, is this the same thing going on in lymphomas? And so um, we wanted to look at this in a... Um, in some experimental way. So what we did was we took patients undergoing photophoresis and um, we um, did flow cytometry of their uh, peripheral blood of the, photo, um, the phoresis product um, before it um, went into the, um, um, before it was mixed with sorlin. Um, and uh, we took out the, the CD4, um, we isolated or looked at their CD4 po um, positive population, um, and we wanted to study the marker VEGF. Um, and so you can see healthy donors um, had a kind of minimal levels, um, as did early stage mycosis fungoides. But when we started having advanced uh, disease patients, um, stage 2B and higher, and we're looking at their a CD4 um, peripheral blood cells, really um, it, it was significantly increased. Um, and if you look at the advanced MF versus Cesare, Cesare uh, patients with circulating um, um, T cells, which express CD4, even had higher levels. So we thought that was uh, um, kind of interesting. And then these are just some flow plots to, to look at that. And anything above this isotype line is um, considered to be positive for, for VEGF. And these were three of our Cesare patients, um, as shown. So it really increased the percentage of these VEGF-expressing cells. And then um, other markers, just to show that um, it was um, the malignant lymphocytes, um, FOXP3 and CTLA4, um, were also stains. And um, it's a very, very similar staining pattern down um, in blue. Um, and then for advanced stage mycosis fungoides, we also did the same thing, and we found, surprisingly, these are patients who don't have the circulating um, uh, Cesare cells um, identifiable in any, any way, but there's, there's CD4 cells in their, in their blood um, did have a higher level of um, VEGF. So we concluded that there was an overexpression of VEGF by peripheral CD4 T cells, um, and which correlated with the more advanced stage disease. Um, and then may, perhaps it was an aberrant VEGF expression in these cells that could be a marker for their progression, um, but could it be a potential target? So I took this on as um, one of my first um, clinical trial writing and endeavors. And so um, we um, had the drug serafinib in hand, which was approved for um, liver cancer at the time. And um, so we decided to target the VEGF receptor and see if we can um, help uh, patients um, 
skin. And so um, we took patients with all T-cell lymphomas, including cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and treated them with a um, standard dose of serafinib and did a scoring system of their skin. Um, and then we were looking at progression-free survival uh, response, progression-free survival, um, and duration of response. Um, and you can see this one patient um, had a very good partial response um, in this photograph. Um, some patients were able to stay on the um, on the drug for as much as six months. Um, some did have. There's one patient who had a complete response, um, but. Uh, what we found is that this drug was actually quite toxic um, at the dose level given, and um, uh, and the d duration wasn't so meaningful uh, because it's that is kind of short. But a lot of the the new drugs now kind of are like this. Um, so I think it was just kind of proof to say that you can give an agent that does target um, angiogenesis and make an impact in the disease. And we may take this further to uh, include some of the new VEGF receptor inhibitors um, that are out there. Um, but I think more exciting is um, the targeted therapy that um, we have available to us now. So there's a new compound called brentuximab vidotin, which has revolu revolutionized the treatment of Hodgkin's disease, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, it is an antibody drug conjugate. And what do I mean by that? So there's an antibody portion that recognizes um, the CD30 protein, which is uh, on the um, T cells, the malignant T cells. But attached to the, CD, uh, the antibody is a linker and a drug called MMAE, which is the, one of the most potent microtubule inhibitors. And um, uh, when you give the drug um, intravenously, it binds and targets CD30. The um, drug then becomes internalized. The MA, MMAE is released into the cell. And then it disrupts the microtubule network um, and then uh, causes apoptosis through cycle, cell cycle arrest. Um, and it's very effective. Um, one of um, one of the CTCL experts, Madeline Dubik, um, published um, her, or um, is doing a clinical study um, with this drug in uh, different CD30 positive um, skin lymphomas. Um, but we had a, a, the um, fortunate uh, circumstance to have um, two patients of our own, and we added to the series with a third patient um, who received the drug um, through compassionate use. And um, they had CD30 on the target as a target on their um, lymphoma. You see, this guy has a tumor stage disease. And just after uh, two cycles, you can see this dramatic improvement um, on his uh, scalp tumors, his axillary tumor, and his uh, paranasal tumor. And then this other guy um, on the end there also had a tumor um, which flattened. That's just after one cycle. So it's a very exciting new drug for the disease um, that um, we, that there's now a phase three clinical trial to trying to get it um, FDA approved for this indication. 
Um, um, this is another target on the, the malignant T cell called CCR4. Um, now, this is just an antibody um, targeting that, um, developed by a Japanese company. Um, it's called Mocoblumizumab. And the uh, targets are, you can see on the right, um, immunohistochemistry uh, in Mycoposis fungoides in the middle panel, um, the target um, is present. Um, it's also present in other T-cell lymphomas. Um, so it's really being tried in all T-cell lymphoma diseases. Um, and uh, we have this trial open, and we are one of the highest enrollers. Um, being a small program, um, we still have enrolled um, a good number of patients. Um, and uh, it's being compared to the HDAC inhibitor varinostat. So it just shows you that even, we have, even if we have a small program, we're able to do some meaningful research um, within the disease if we choose um, clinical trials um, appropriately. And so I'd like to close just with um, a description, final description of our cutaneous lymphoma program. Um, so it often starts with a, a referral from the outside. Um, the patient um, has a joint appointment uh, with uh, myself and the dermatology team, Dr. Zug. Um, and often there are residents and fellows who are in our clinic learning with us. And at the time of the visit, if we think that they need um, further consultation or input from any one of our disease team, our treatment teams, such as the uh, photophoresis team or radiation oncology, we can get them uh, on the same day very often. Um, patients do travel quite far, so this is a very uh, useful um, thing to have. And then um, we present their pathology um, at the tumor board um, with photos of their skin, and we discuss what the um, right next treatment might be. And then we finalize the treatment plan, and then we uh, send them off to whichever modality of treatment that they will need. And really, it shows um, um, where, like, with the different types of therapies here that we would do, we could um, send them to a dermatology who has uh, UV treatment. Um, we can um, often send them back to the referring dermatologist or um, oncologist um, to receive treatments. We could treat them in outreach. Um, but we have all these um, patient supports with our um, nurse practitioner and triage nurses. Um, if they need stem cell transplant, we'll call them in. Um, my colleagues in and. And um, it's really been um, fun to build this program. Uh, this is just an acknowledgment of everyone who has really participated um, and helps in the care of these patients. And each one of their, uh, these people has their staff helping, um, taking care of getting patients through the system. Um, I'd like to thank Dr. Zug, who um, has really been instrumental in um, having and um, the enthusiasm to uh, have this clinic with, with me. And um, we have our radiation oncologist, uh, Dr. Jarvis, Dr. Zaki, who um, deliver all types of radiation. Um, Nancy Dunbar and Ziggy have really helped with the photophoresis program. Um, and then we have our uh, hematopathologist, dermatopathologist, who are um, looking at uh, things under the microscope with us. Um, we had the 
a special a specializers practitioner in lymphoma who has a very keen interest um, with us in T cell lymphoma. We have our dermatology nurse LNAs, our triage nurses who are taking phone calls um, and um, helping manage patients over the phone, um, their labs, and um, we have a active clinical trials program, which I'm very proud of, um, and uh, Darcy Finlay has been uh, the coordinator and have a fabulous research nurse, um, Sarah, and um, all the other people who really help us uh, maintain this program. So I, um, I thank each and every one of them because I really think you're helping um, patients with a tough disease. Um, we get thank you letters, um, thank you cards from patients. We get mentioned in patients' blogs um, about the care that they receive here, and it's um, all very positive. And so I'm very, very, very thankful for that. And then um, lastly, I'd like to close with this special thanks to my wife, Raina, who's really supported me in every step of the way. Uh, here she's um, lifting me up in a, in a dance move, which we call hay bales. <laughs> and my kids, um, Amika and Liana, who um, just helped me see the big picture um, when I often can't see it myself. Um, so with that, I'd like to close, and thank you for your attention. So I'm sure Eric would be glad to take any questions you have for him. Yes. It's usually just the lesions we see where it's affected and um, that causes the, the localized reaction, inflammatory reaction. Um, normal skin, we've looked at normal skin um, in the context of um, participating in the clinical trials and it's not present. Yes, John? Very nice. Um, in the context of this, some of the studies you're talking about, for instance, the serafinib versus the indicated issue, what do you think the prospects are for combination therapy where, for instance, you know, serafinib in combination with HDAC inhibitor and to do combination studies with HDAC inhibitor plus brentuximab because there's been thought they could upregulate CD30. Um, just getting companies together to work together on this has been the real challenge, um, but uh, that is in the forefront of everyone's mind. So, uh, Dan had a question. So I'm curious about the, the uh, uh, holding for the skin mm. and the role of Langerhans cells, and I was. Uh, if I remember correctly, the lymphodendritic cells are lycanthritic. Yes. Antigen present, and I was wondering if there's work on what antigen they're presenting. <laughs> cells. Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Um, but I can tell you that um, when we co culture these cells, um, and this was developed by um, the late Carol Berger, um, Dr. Edelson's colleague at Yale, you can actually take um, out. The, the white blood cells um, culture the cells on a monolayer of dendritic cells, and um, the, the T cells will kind of interact with that. And, you know, it's their cytokine signaling. What antigen is being presented there, uh, we just don't know. 
Yes. So at what stage do these folks become compromised? <laughs> From the get-go or? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they still Yes, yes. In the early stages, um, I would say that their uh, immune system is more or less intact. When it becomes more advanced in the T3 and T4, um, someone who's erythrodermic um, or has sensory cells kind of circulating, their percentage of T cells that are normal are less, and they are immune suppressed. And then the barrier itself of the skin is a nidus for entry of infection. Um, bacteremia is very common or um, infected cellulitis, folliculitis, all of those things um, become more prevalent. Yes, Camille. Camille. What is known about the pathogenesis? What's the relationship with the pulses are common? Oh, yeah, the purplish kind of um, tumorous lesions. Um, I don't know if there's any relation. I just think that Kaposi's um, tends to be very vascular, or um, that's why I kind of wanted to explore angiogenesis. Um, but I'm not familiar with any relationship or any kind of viral um, trigger in the pathogenesis. Yes, in the back. <laughs> Um, I, I would have to ask and defer to my dermatologist. I don't know that I, I know it's often misdiagnosed as psoriasis. <clears throat> Maybe that it's also diagnosed as a pseudo-lymphoma first, um, which has features of lymphoma, but is not a lymphoma. Um, so we often have to do serial biopsies um, to really prove it over time. And so we don't label a patient with lymphoma until we're absolutely sure and we can meet some criteria. Um, yeah, that's kind of the best answer I can give you. Yes? Yeah. So the ones are, who have more advanced disease and who have failed um, maybe two lines of therapy, um, systemic therapy usually, um, or you treat them and the disease comes immediately right back. Um, uh, patients where you need, to, I mean, I didn't show like the most extreme cases, um, but um, if you can get their disease into remission, often this is very short remission, either with combination chemotherapy or electron beam radiation, and then you're already thinking that you need to do an aloe. Uh, obviously, they have to be, the performance status has to allow it, um, the age. Um, this is a disease of older uh, folks, uh, but certainly younger patients are the patients we've transplanted, um, and they can actually have a very good outcome. Yeah. We have a number of patients who are um, survivors of the disease after an aloe. Sit here, and then we'll get to Constantine. Yeah, so there's, they are starting to do that. That's the subject of different um, um, research in the field now, um, looking at um, on genetic markers, cytogenetics on, on the lymphoma cells. Um, so it is being borne out which, you know, if, if there are going to be some 
some prognostic features from the genetic level. Constantine. Why there is Oh, right, the rest of it. There are three different ones, yeah. Uh, two are approved. Um, so there's Romodepsin and Varinostat, which you know a lot about. Um, it, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so I, th I think uh, the um, differentiation agents and the, um, certainly the epigenetic agents, those uh, the epigenetics, I can tell you, I mean, it does, does happen to. Um, to um, and then tumor suppressors then become um, expressed again. Um, and uh, why differentiating agents work better? Um, I, yeah, I, that one I can't really answer. That's a good question. Yes? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that the creative process is, is one that um, I've always been tuned into. And when thinking about therapies for people, I think it just opens up the door, you know, that um, angiogenesis kind of idea just kind of sprung up. Um, and uh, what else can I say about music? Uh, I, you know, I, I just think it's a different part of the brain which just feeds into um, a very, um, you know, scientific um, one. And the merge of the two, I think, really, um, it, it's very been it's been nice for me to have both things um, going. So thank you. Well, what, why don't we call it a, a spot there? Thank you yeah. very much, Eric, and let's get back. Thank you.